Hey everyone, it's Matt. And I'm Kyle. And we're the Casual Tutors. Today we're going to talk about some common pitfalls or traps that people fall into in their EDH deck building or gameplay. But as always, before we get to that, I want to jump into a little bit of housekeeping. You guys are absolutely crushing the support. As of this recording, we're at 974 plays, which means we are just 26 short of reaching 1,000, which huge milestone for us. We've only been recording since November, so getting 1,000 plays mid-February is just blowing my mind. Other than that, it's the usual hit us up on our socials. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Casual Tutors. We're also on Discord, TikTok, and YouTube. Uh, make sure to join our Discord. There's usually some kind of lively conversation happening. We're slowly gaining new members, new people talking about exciting decks that are coming out or spoiled cards or asking for help with different things. And we're always you know, more than willing and happy to interact with our community. And we want to see everyone grow together with us as the show gets more traction. Anyways, without further ado, let's just jump into today's episode. Talking pitfalls and traps that people fall into and we'll start with deck building i think the largest one when it comes to deck building is getting off focus when it comes to your deck overall obviously your commanders give you a straightforward strategy some kind of idea of what the entire deck wants to follow but everyone gets a little diluted sometimes you know whether it's including pet cards or just you know finding other cool cards in a color combination, stuff like that. Oh, yeah. it's. I mean, it's incredibly easy, too, because the colors, they have specific things they do, but it's usually not just one thing. Like, every color has a couple of things that they do really well, and some of that might overlap, and it can get really confusing. Um, I think the biggest thing that you can do is look back to the pre-cons of yesteryear the old pre-cons that wizards of the coast used to try and shove so many different sub themes into and kind of take note from that as what not to do you know it's just because one color might be good at these three things what what does your commander do like does your commander do those three three things does it really make sense for your whole deck to do those these three things wizards definitely diluted down particularly old pre-cons we're talking like 2015 2016 with multiple different themes occurring in the same deck and they try to substitute that by giving alternate commanders in there that party to that theme but ultimately what it, all it did was cause you know there'd be 10 or 15 cards for each different theme none of them really necessarily work great together and really made the decks confusing as to what their end goal game plan was I think there's some false correlation that goes along with the number of colors that you're playing in your deck. It seems to me, at least in my brain, and you know, obviously correlation is not causation, but the more colors you play in a deck, it seems like the easier and easier it becomes to dilute it down to get on these little side paths and including, oh, this neat little thing, or you know, we're really doing life gain, but oh, if I gain life, I'm gonna gain counters. So I want to put a couple counter cards in there, stuff like that. And I believe the opposite could also be said for the less colors, monocolored specifically, where it's easier to include more pet cards for that specific color that not necessarily add to your game plan, but are just cards you like playing in that particular color, which isn't a bad thing. 
pet cards are totally normal, totally part of the creative process when it comes to making your deck you. But it definitely can be part of a trap when you're coming to making those last couple cuts. Don't be scared to cut those pet cards. You're going to make more decks. That's that's the beautiful thing about magic, right? Is you're gonna you're gonna have decks. You're gonna cut decks. You're gonna take decks apart. You're gonna build new decks. You might go back and rebuild old decks. You're always going to have a place that you can put these pet cards in. You're always gonna have the next deck to build. Don't. I guess beat yourself up over it over, you know, Oh, this is my pet card. This is, you know, I don't want to cut this. Well, I, I think a lot of times you either a end up having a deck sit on your desk for months cause you can't cut anything. Or what happens is you build a deck that's not up to par. You know, you got to think about things like that too is, uh, what what is your playgroup playing at? Are you building fours because of these pet cards when your whole playgroup's playing at jokes aside a seven? Building to your playgroup is the most important most important thing you can do. Obviously, you don't want to be underpowered because then you're not having fun and winning those games. And just to remind everybody, we do this I think every episode. You're playing commander to win, and although it is a social interaction and a social format. Everybody likes winning. It's one of the best parts about the game. And getting that sense of accomplishment for beating a pod is definitely something everybody strives for. But at the same time, you don't want to gear your deck to be over the strength of your playgroup. Coming in with pseudo CDH or, you know, I guess if we had to put a number on eight and a half or nine when everybody's playing sevens, um, all decks are sevens in reality. And you know, just absolutely seal clubbing kids on a daily is not fun for your group. They're probably going to have a sit down and talk at least amongst themselves about playing with you. Uh, Obviously labeling you a problem when you sit down in groups with them. And that often will lead to unfun interactions for you in the end. You might win the first couple of pods, but as soon as they catch on to what you're doing and the power level you're playing at, you're going to be the target regardless of anything you're doing. Building a deck underpowered is the pitfall that we really always think about, but building overpowered is too. And that doesn't mean you can't build these uh, pseudo CDH level decks or CDH level decks. I think it goes back to that rule zero talk, and maybe this is more on the gameplay side than the deck building side, but really just uh, talk to your group. I mean, if all you ever play or all you ever have are pseudo CDH decks, then that's a deck building problem that you may want to look at. But if you are sitting down and playing a pseudo CDH deck when you have five other decks that can fit the play group, that's that's definitely an issue that you might want to look at. Another pitfall of playing these, you know, less colors in a deck or, you know, one or two color decks is that a lot of times cards that are, you know, quote unquote meta or you see fairly often in the magic world or on a game of uh, game nights or something like that are easier to include in your initial list. And as you go through them, you know, you, you know, I saw X, Y, and Z play this on this show and this was a great card in this color. I'm going to include it, but it might not necessarily work with your commander or your overall game plan. And again, just getting down to, it's almost that exact same thing as pet cards, just because a card was powerful 
in one particular curated episode on a YouTube channel doesn't mean that it's always going to be a performer in your deck, especially if it doesn't really fit your theme. And it's important just to focus and bear down and keep reminding yourself what those words on your commander's card say, because as we all know, reading the card explains the card. And if you can explain your commander, you should be able to explain what your deck is going to be doing. I tell people all the time, building for commander is, is in my opinion, easier than building for any other format. Uh, you start right out the gate with this card that tells you exactly what to do, you know? Uh, obviously, your choice for what cards to use is going to be somewhat vast because we're playing in an eternal format, but it still should not be as hard as some other formats, in my opinion. Along those same lines, building your deck... I, I don't know. I don't necessarily agree that it's easier than other formats because it's the same thing in modern or legacy or whatever is you have a deck, you have an idea for what it's supposed to do. You put that core thing in there and then you build around that core to either protect it or enhance that strategy. Right. What, and, I, what I was saying though is, is the, with something like that is you have to go, okay, what do I want to build? You know, am I building Am I, I, I don't know. I, I don't, <laughs> I'm thinking modern. I don't really play modern, but you know, you got to think, am I building this and you got to figure out what you want to build and then you got to figure out how to build it. Or if you're going to net deck either way, whatever with commander, I mean, you just pick the commander and then the commander tells you what to build. Right. Right. Yeah. The commander world is much more open. You get to express that creativity. And a lot of times that is through your commander. I'm, I like to tell people not to build decks solely around what their commander is doing because it feels real bad when your commander costs 12 and you're not doing anything but definitely as the guiding light for your deck your commander brings something to the table that you don't get anywhere else that leads us kind of into our last pitfall or trap when it comes to deck building and this will transition right into gameplay and analyzing board state and stuff like that but that's playing interaction in your deck and this is something I really want to emphasize because to me, one of the worst things playing in a pod for my feels personally is when you're the only one interacting with anything on the board state, when you're constantly, you know, quote unquote, taking one for the team to knock down a threat or whatever is kind of disheartening. And I understand that being a reason for people not wanting to play interaction, but it should be the exact opposite. You should be, you know, emphasizing that you know, your play group needs to pick up some slack. You can't be doing it all, stuff like that. And also using it as a good politics tool, you know, I'm going to remove XYZ. I'm going to solve this problem. I'm going to provide a solution for everybody. You know, give me a little bit of slack since I'm taking my turn to do this. You know, give me one turn on combat. Give me, you know, quote unquote teams with somebody um, just to give you some more incentive for this interaction. But as a whole, whether you're doing targeted removal, counter spells, fight spells, if you're playing protection, which is interaction, stuff like that is vital for your deck, vital for whatever strategy. I don't care what you're doing. You're gonna have, you need to have some kind of interaction. And this is kind of where we talk about the amounts that you should be playing in a deck. I hate the cookie cutter concept. Uh, I understand why people like game nights and stuff like that, they do it because they're appealing to a large audience and they're trying to help people become better commander players. 
but it's so dependent on who your commander is and what your strategy is really saying you need to have 12 pieces of removal in a deck doesn't work for the majority of players in my opinion so i like to give a big range i go anywhere from 7 to 12 or 13 and that's not counting board wipes which we'll talk about here in a second but you know obviously if you're in blue you're playing counter spells you're even blue has targeted removal in frogify and um another one that makes a mutant Are you talking about obviously Pongify? Well, there is Pongify too. There's Frogify, Pongify, and Rapid Hybridization is the one oh, I was talking yeah, about. Oh, yeah, yeah, Rapid Hybridization. But Black, you got, you know, direct creature removal. It's often the best forms of removal, and it also, also comes at usually the cost of life, which is totally normal for Black. White, you have strong exile facts and Path and Swords the Plowshares. Uh, there's a couple other ones that have been reprinted recently, different forces, stuff like that. Green has fight effects. It has beast within which is one of the best removals in my opinion because it targets literally anything and then red is literally just what red always does just burn face do damage those kinds of things but any of those interactions you know getting them into your deck is super important people joke and say lightning bolt isn't cedh playable there's plenty of situations where three damage to either to knock an opponent out to kill a troublesome creature, stuff like that in response as an instant for one mana. I think Lightning Bolt is amazing. Interaction gets a bad rap with a lot of different playgroups and different people. It does cause some feels bad, especially, you know, if the person that's being targeted with interaction doesn't feel like it's justified. If they're just trying to get started and there's, you know, quote unquote, a bigger threat or whatever, those things really shouldn't matter for you. It's important for you to analyze the board state as it is apparent to you and you know like we say you're in this to win the game so these decisions need to help you move towards that goal of winning exactly it is a game that you are trying to win you should take a second to look back and really analyze the board state and this this will kind of transition us into uh gameplay because targeted or uh not targeted interaction is a good topic for not only deck building, but also gameplay as well. When you're playing a game of Magic, you're really sitting there and making these split-second decisions. You're deciding who is the biggest threat, what targets should be removed, how do I go about this? And I think that an issue that people may, or a, a mistake that people make with interaction is threat assessment. Is I think a lot of times you'll... You'll see a guy that, you know, did a bunch of stuff uh, two turns ago and, you know, that's still fresh in your brain and you're like, oh, well, we got to slow him down. But really in the last turn, one guy did way more stuff and is way more ahead, you know, and maybe you're still focused on the one guy that did things beforehand. So it's really a matter of using this interaction wisely as well. The other thing, too, is this is a social game. It is a political game, right? They talk about commander politics all the time. If you're on the targeted end of interaction, you can always, you know, strike deals, try to talk your way out of it. This is a casual format. Even if they've tapped their mana and this is technically on the stack, I, I still talk my way, you know, try to be like, hey, you know, I know that you've you said you're going to target this thing on my board, but, you know, this is a bigger threat. Can we come to some kind of deal? It is a casual format. I see people rewind things all the time. 
don't think, oh, they've already targeted my thing. That's it. I guess I'm just going to lay down and take it. I mean, you know, try to add in that social and political aspect. I feel like that's something that we've been missing recently that I haven't seen a whole lot of in uh, maybe it's just our local play group. But I, I think we need to remember that this is a social format and there are politics involved. Part of that is definitely related to EDH becoming a more competitive format. I mean, we do tout it as casual. It is 100% casual. But as Wizard has kind of taken the reins, so to speak, printed commander-exclusive product, pre-cons, entire set blocks, stuff like that, we've definitely seen power levels and competitiveness increase, you know, I would say tenfold from where it was 10 years ago. And definitely politicking is not one of those competitive features that is definitely embraced by, you know, Watsi suits. I think another solution to this, and it just leads right back into it, player own interaction, protection to T-Pro, things like T-Pro, where, you know, phasing or you're exiling to end of turn, stuff like that to protect it. Uh, you're giving something hexproof or indestructible, stuff like that is invaluable and still consider board interaction. Yeah, um, and there's so many of them too. I mean, you think of things like heroic intervention, uh, the veils are all really good. There's, there. I mean, the both of them I just said are in green, but play in green, just play green, then you'll be fine. Play green and blue, that's all you should play. Simic does win, it's got Oko. Anyways, the next part of interaction that I like barely briefly touched on that I said we were gonna talk about later, that's board wipes. And to me, we're now in the realm of I much prefer to play larger amounts of single target interaction than playing board wipes. That being said, I still try to include two, sometimes three, depending on the strategy, board wipes per deck. And these are definitely have changed over the years from where they were when we just had uh, Wrath of God and stuff like that. Where now we're getting modal cards, cards that will exile instead of destroy. They only hit, you know, artifacts, enchantments, creatures, and you have to select. So, you know, you're getting more control over your gameplay. But at the same time, there's no larger tempo piece that you could put in a deck than a board wipe, regardless of its kind. And I think the timing of board wipes are incredibly important. And being able to look at the board, realize that, you know, if you wipe, you either come back and win quickly or you're more importantly going to stop yourself from losing is, I think, really the only two acceptable reasons to board wipe. If the board's stagnant, nothing's happened for a long time, no one's really doing anything, board wipe isn't really going to change anybody from doing nothing. It's just all of a sudden there's going to be nothing on the board with nobody doing anything. And that's just going to prolong your game into these three or four hour games that we see some people playing. That's a good point with board wipes. I think that the mindset around board wipes is incorrect. I think that board wipes are not the I'm going to win answer. I think board wipes are the I need to not lose answer. I think board wipes should be used when you think you're going to lose the game, and that's the only way out of losing the game. I also think that for the most part, board wipes that don't inherently benefit you shouldn't be played. I'm talking anything that gives you an option, things like austere command, merciless eviction, <laughs> farewell. farewell. Yeah, even even 
cleansing Nova really, I guess, does give you an option, right? They're not as good of an option as the other ones, but still an option. I think that those should be played more so. And then for somewhat you can play, if you're in the deck, things like Organic Extinction or the one that only destroys non-token creatures, those are going to be really good in their respective decks, obviously. These are what should be played, and these can be played a little bit as both, as like kind of like win mores and as um, uh, not losing. But for the most part, even those, I think, are only in I need to not lose the game right now situations. I think that's where board wipes differ from the rest of interaction is, and a lot of interaction, I guess, can be I need to not lose the game, but a lot of times you're like targeted removal is, oh, you know, this is a problem. Let me just get rid of the problem. Not necessarily I'm going to lose the game problem, but still a problem. Board wipes need to be like later in the game. I'm kind of behind a little bit. These guys are way ahead. I'm going to die next turn if I don't do anything. Yeah, I, I just I flat out hate late game board wipes. Even if you're way behind, unless, like I said, I think board wipes are totally fine to be that I'm going to win the game, but it needs to be, I'm going to win the game immediately after board wipe or the turn immediately after. And maybe late game's not the right, maybe more right. like mid game is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking like turns, Reset yeah, turns like six, seven, maybe. That depends on how long the, your games go, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah, hopefully your games are going a healthy amount of turns. I like, you know, I think 12 is the sweet spot. It's a little bit longer, so you get a little bit more turns per player, stuff like that. It's not over super fast, and I feel like those games tend to have more back and forth, more opportunities for King of the Castle to shift, stuff like that. But that's a whole other discussion. Right, I forget. I I was going to say, I forget that if you're taking, if it's a 12-turn game, that's 48 turns among the table. Right. Yeah, and that's an incredibly long enough amount of time. That's typically your your hour to hour and a half game, I would say, is roughly 12 turns. If you're getting into these three or four hour games, especially if you're only in a four-player pod, like, God save you, because you are just playing a ton of magic and not really doing a lot. I think early turn board-wise, I'm talking turns two or three, especially when we're talking about these board wipes that target specifically artifacts because those seem to come down super early in a game have the greatest effect and can change the tide in a, a way that doesn't prolong the game but allows you to either regain ground or catapult yourself forward depending on whatever you're doing and you know it really some people I, I feel like there's less salt on early turn board wipes in general at your table as well like, well, okay, yeah, I guess that happens. We just pick it up and start over, but it's only turn three, so we're not, no one's super far behind. No one is, you know, feeling like they're out of the game at that point, even though in your mind, you know, you just made a play that's going to absolutely benefit you. Well, and that's a good point on uh, the win more board wipes, right? Because you go, you're talking things like, one, the overload mechanic, things like Vandal Blast, and even Psych Rift, really, um, bouncing everyone's stuff, because you're talking about things that you're not affecting your own stuff, right? You're right. affecting your opponents, so that's definitely win more. I mean, I I would say not that's... Necessarily, not necessarily that it doesn't affect your stuff, but you're not so invested into those things that are being wiped as you know a certain other player. 
or well, a couple of other players. Let's say you know they ramp super fast with a bunch of rocks, turns one, two, and three, or something like that, and you might have a soul ring, but they're still producing six more mana than you. Stuff like that. Right, but I'm talking, I'm talking the like the overload specifically, like Vandal Blast or Psychrift, which don't affect your stuff at all. Yeah, I'm not as big a fan as those. Um, I can, like you labeled them perfectly. I think they are win more. Um, Psych Rift, I think, is significantly better because it has those two modes, the overload and the single target mode. And that definitely does help it uh, find slots in more of my decks. But things that flat out just board wipe for eight mana to me are unplayable, regardless if it's affecting me or not. All these board wipes, all these interaction come as an opportunity cost in your deck. And that cost is playing something that directly advances your strategy or playing this interaction. And weighing those costs to benefits, I feel is super important. That's why I like putting a big range on single target interaction. Decks that are more focused on strategies that don't necessarily evolve going wide or creature combat can afford to put more interaction into their decks in my opinion and not necessarily token decks because there's enough things out there in the world now that double and triple tokens that you don't need as many cards to generate those tokens um but we do you know those opportunity costs are super important to evaluate in your deck for yourself and you know we kind of talk about the deck making process and that includes the first few games of your you know, deck's existence and evaluating how it's performing, trying to get in those games where you, you're seeing a large part of the deck, you're doing a large number of things and, you know, kind of tuning and tweaking it, remind, reminding yourself, oh, maybe I need this rock. Maybe I need a counter spell. You know, one board wipe isn't enough. I find myself too far behind constantly, stuff like that. Just going back and making those little changes, updating. And then eventually, after you know four or five plays through this deck, you usually get a good feel that you're in a happy place with it. That's a good point, too. And we mentioned this in the deck building episode, but deck building does not end when you have a 100-card sleeve. Moving on to talking more about board state, we, we kind of touched on determining who is the threat, who isn't the threat, moving on. Um, the threat or the big bad at the table is not static. In some games it is, but I would say the majority of games I see, the, the first threat to arise usually gets dealt with if they don't win by turn five. And it's important to remember once the threat is thoroughly defeated, whether they get eliminated in a game in you know, due course, or you just board wipe them, you remove rocks, whatever, you put them so far behind they have no chance of recovering, they become more of an asset than a threat, at least in my opinion. It's important to remember in multiplayer magic that your opponents are still facing your opponents. So, you know, the friend of my, or enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing. Even though you know that person you just absolutely neutered is no longer a threat at this table, that just makes somebody else a threat. Maybe it makes you a threat, but regardless of you being a threat, there will be someone a th- as a, that can be seen as a threat to you. So using that neutered player kind of as a distraction and, uh, you know, leaving them out there as, you know, a potential enemy or maybe even just an easier target for your enemies to hit definitely takes some of that focus off of you and allows you to keep progressing. They become an asset in more ways than one, not only just to, I guess, distract your opponents, but 
let's say let's say if you get rid of these people, then who are your opponents going to look at next? Right. It's less targets for your opponent, just like it's less targets for you. So you got to remember, as your situation at the table changes, it's still going to change for your opponents. There's also the political aspect of it. Just because they might not have a board state anymore and they're not recovering any kind of presence at the table doesn't mean that they're not going to draw a card that can help benefit you. And using them as a tool against other players is still completely viable. And talking with them, being like, you know, I can't kill you. Uh, what do you have to offer? Can you help me deal with X, Y, and Z? Stuff like that. Keeping them involved in the game not only helps advance your board state and your game plan, but it also keeps them involved in the game. Let's them have still a, a relatively good experience, even though they got absolutely crushed at this point. The thing about that, though, kind of worries me because with the same thing in mind is, yeah, they could draw something that helps you, but they could also draw something like, I, I don't know, let's say you set them back. Let's say you do the board wipe and you set them back, and then all of a sudden they draw the, the living death, right? So uh, keep in mind, I mean, uh, you can't, you, you can't, you're, you're not psychic. You don't know what they're going to draw off the top of the deck. You don't know what's in their hand. Um, you just have to be able to play to the best of your ability. But I think unless you're at a point in the game where you can have the for sure win on all three opponents, I think that a lot of times just killing one person early is not beneficial. Right. If you're going to, I like to be able to kill, if I'm going to kill a single target, I want to be able to kill at least one other person or all the other two, at least within the next turn and just tie out, draw out the game and finish with a win. Um, if you're going to eliminate one person, play another six round or six turns, you know, not only is it going to be feels bad for that person as they sit there and watch you guys, but you, you really lost some potential asset there. I bet you in that situation, you're not the person that ends up winning. Right, because if, you, if you're the one that eliminates a threat, especially super early in a game, you more than often become a threat because the other players see what you did. And, you know, a lot of times it clicks, you know, in the prefrontal cortex of the brain or whatever, they kick that flight or flight extinct, and, and they're going to fight, and they're going to target you as the person that just eliminated somebody else. And they see themselves as on the chopping block, even though in reality you might have only had enough to deal with that one person for, like I said, six or seven turns or whatever. But I want to talk about the social aspect of also focusing down the threat. You know, it's going to generate a lot of salt when you absolutely, I keep using the term neuter, but, you know, you break someone down to the point where there's no recovery for them in that game. And, you know, regardless of them, you know, top decking a board wipe or something like that, to continue that focus onto them without, you know, a plan for following through and eliminating other opponents is definitely kind of a targeted assault and is not really a, a friendly type thing to do. Just because they swung with 12 angels on one turn at everyone on the board state and then you absolutely crush them doesn't mean that they're going to immediately build back up to 12 angels to swing again. It's time to, you know, analyze, look at whoever else is the threat. And I always like to joke around with my group, like, you know, always, hey, you guys, who's the threat? And, you know, me being me, a lot of times it's just saying, you are, of course you are, stuff like that. And then, you know, joking. But even if you are number one at that table, there's a number two. And that number two is your largest threat. So even though they might not be, quote unquote, winning the game at that point, 
they're doing everything they can they can to make it so that you are no longer winning the game. And it's just important to remember that. So being able to move on and you know analyze who's the current king, who is the current threat for you at the table, regardless of who it was last turn, is super important to your game. We get stuck in this like arch enemy mindset, and the thing is, is I think the king, the arch enemy, you know, maybe not necessarily arch enemy because that implies that all three players are attacking one person, but either way, that person does consistently change. And as such, if you are going to have an arch enemy mindset, I think that that's going to change. I think, you know, and it's going to be a little weird because, you know, the guy two turns ago that all three of you were targeting is now on your side targeting somebody else. But I just think that's kind of how the game plays. And that's something that you should be aware of. And be open to, more importantly. Right. The last thing I want to touch on is something that I kind of I've seen less as less of in our play group locally, but I know is a, a larger issue for the magic community, and that's instant speed scooping. Obviously, per magic rules, you're allowed to concede the game at any time. The issue with that comes in commander is that you and your board state are just as much of an asset to other players in that pod as they are to you. They are going to be relying on you for certain triggers, for, you know, attacks, stuff like that, copies, different things. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with reading the writing on the wall and, you know, in between turns or on your turn, you know, scooping and picking up and getting ready for that next game. But if you're on opponent X's turn and they are about to swing with, you know, a huge board state that, you know, is all these triggers and you're the easiest target for them to resolve those triggers. Just picking up and scooping right there and ruining their game plan is a really shitty move. And, you know, I, I don't think there's really any larger examples of pure bad sportsmanship in this game than scooping in spite. Exactly. And I mean, this goes back to just communicate. Like, I don't know what it is, but nobody wants to talk. Just communicate. Just talk to each other, you know? If you're not having fun or you, or you don't think that you got the win in you and you'd rather move on to the next table or the next game, you know, say, hey, look, I, I, I don't think there's anything I can do. I don't think I can come back from this. Talk to them. And a lot of times what will happen is the guy that is doing something will be like, okay, I do this, this, and this real quick, so I get this. And then all of a sudden, 15 seconds later, you're able to pick up and go and nobody has any hard feelings. Exactly. There's no reason to scoop when that person who's relying on you for all the triggers is literally about to win the game. Just take it on the chin, lose the game, because either way, it's a loss for you, and allow them to, you know, see their deck through to the finish, because they're just like you. They spent time, they spent effort building this deck, getting these different interactions and synergies built for the deck, and then just to have it essentially robbed from them because you're spiteful and you're scooping, you know, just before this thing can happen is wrong. If you're ever in this situation, kind of our solution for it is to keep that player there, quote unquote, in spirit, where we act like they're still sitting at the table and their board state was as it was when they picked up and just allowing your triggers to resolve as they would. Not taking it as an excuse to be like, oh, you know, George picked up. I'm just going to swing everything at him, even though I might have split it up differently if he were still in the game. No, just pretend like they're there, act as normal, get your triggers resolved. You know, hopefully you win. 
and just move on and then pretend like either they died that turn or they just picked up at a more acceptable time. Right. And that doesn't even have to be that complicated because a lot of times I'm guessing what that would be is like death triggers and stuff like that. You still take those into account. If you were going to swing all out and, or you were going to do a board wipe that was going to benefit you because of death triggers or whatever, you can take that into account real quick and then be like, oh, okay, they're not there anymore. You know, it doesn't have to be anything complicated. Right. Or even like attack triggers. I was thinking specifically of, you know, I have this thing that triggers on attack. If I swing it into, you know, Sally or Fred over there, they just block and die. But George, had he not scooped, I would be able to swing in securely, keep my attack trigger in place. The creature doesn't die. The trigger still happens, stuff like that. Um, and, you know, especially you know, there's a lot of decks out there that focus on different triggers occurring at different times. And just making sure that you're, you're like I said, allowing those players to continue their deck as they built it without, you know, robbing them. And that's exactly what it is. It's, it's a robbery of their fun. Yeah, and it, I'm not I'm not saying this is going to be involved. Take out a piece of paper and a calculator and do some calculus. Just pretend like they were there. Do your thing. Move on. And like I said, hopefully win the game because that's great. You, obviously, you, someone's scooping in, in response to something, you're probably about to win. Anyways, uh, just to kind of finish up here with a little bit of housekeeping, like I said at the top of the episode, we are literally 26 plays away from cracking that 1,000 all-time plays number, and that's huge. You guys have already been absolutely crushing the support. We are consistently over an audience size of 60 uh, different listeners for a seven day unique period. We're consistently over 50 plays per episode on average. Now uh, we are absolutely growing and, you know, hopefully explosively here soon as we can keep picking up new listeners, you guys keep sharing these episodes. And I know 1000 plays is just the beginning for us and we're going to really take off and we owe it all to you guys. Thanks. Please keep it up. Jump on our socials, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at casual tutors. And, you know, I'm more excited to see you guys all join our Discord. Come check it out. Chat us up. Send hi, you know, a little wavy emoji, something like that. Let us know you're in and join the conversation that's, you know, regularly happening. Just jump right in. Don't feel afraid. Well, we welcome everybody. Anyways, my name is Matt. And I'm Kyle. And we're the Casual Tutors. Thanks for listening.